0: This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions.
1: Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on acute asthma in children. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Asthma in children is common and acute asthma is all too common as well. Asthma is the third leading cause of hospitalization in children. Debts due to to asthma still occur and avoidable factors may play a part in some deaths. So what can we do to help? To tell us, we have on the line Dr. Paul Robinson, who's Clinical Associate Professor and Senior Staff Specialist in Respiratory Medicine at the Children's Hospital Westmead in Sydney. And importantly, Paul is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Paul you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us about acute asthma in children. What are the key points?
0: Well, Kieran as you, as you mentioned, asthma is an no all too common condition, so it affects approximately 10% of children and it's and acute asthma attacks are one of the most common emergency presentations in the pediatric age range. In fact, almost half of all children by the age of 6 years have had a wheeze episode. Um, So in terms of key points of an asthma attack, it tends to present uh, with an acute or subacute onset of wheeze or respiratory stress, and the symptoms and signs that we see vary depending on the developmental age of the child. Uh, But the triggers are typically viral, um, and in some series, um, up to 80% of asthma attacks are triggered by viral um, infections, but they can include other aspects or other um, triggers such as inhaled allergens, environmental irritants. Um, emotion exercise. But the, the key thing with asthma attacks is the majority respond to in, inhaled bronchodilator therapy.
1: Okay, thank you. Tell us, how do you make the diagnosis of acute asthma in children?
0: So when we're making the diagnosis, we're also thinking about the underlying mechanism, about how they arise. And so it's an acute or a subacute episode of airway or airflow obstruction. Um, on a background of often chronic airway inflammation and airway hyper-responsiveness. So it's initiated by a trigger. Um, those triggers, as I mentioned before, can be the common aspects such as viral infections, and we may see signs of that. Um, they may be um, due to exposures to um, to allergens or the irritants, and they lead to um, the onset of bronchoconstriction. Um, and and that can also be accompanied by um, increased mucus production, increased airway inflammation. And those, in combination, lead to a worsening of asthma-related symptoms, which are classically thought to be wheeze, um, but also um, can include cough, shortness of breath, and respiratory stress.
1: Okay, thank you. And um, do you need to do any tests to, to make the diagnosis or, or, or of acute asthma in children, or is it a kind of largely a clinical diagnosis?
0: It's mainly a clinical diagnosis. Um, we, as I mentioned before, there's risk factors that we look for and triggers um, that we're aware of, and the diagnosis can be based on um, what we hear and what the parents describe and what we find on examination. So I mentioned the prominence of wheeze that may be associated with shortness of breath, um, tachypnea or chest tightness, and there may be accompanying signs depending on the on the age of the child that may include aspects such as... Um, difficulty speaking sentences, um, uh, reduced affect and it reduced activity, whether they're using accessory muscle use when we're, when we're examining them. So it depends to the certain extent of where of where we're seeing them. But those are the, the classic um, aspects that um, general practitioners might notice if they're presented with a child, whether they think there's an asthma attack or in the ED department when they're seeing them. And, and in, in the ED department, obviously, we have other signs we can go, such as oxygen saturations, and... Um, uh, measured respiratory rate. Um, in terms of tests, um, the, the classic test um, we might use or how we might gauge a situation might be the response to a, a short-acting beta 2 agonist such as ventolin and otherwise formal tests, um, which are ones that may be described in kind of the adult settings such as peak flow and, and um, spirometry, are less commonly used um, in the paediatric setting, that often reflects the fact that it can be more challenging in our tertiary hospitals um, to actually perform the test when they're when they're having an acute attack. Um, but we do occasionally use them um, if we're looking to to confirm the diagnosis, and we may sometimes use them. When we're actually looking to try and pick up some of the differential diagnoses or, or misdiagnoses that can be mistaken for asthma.
1: Okay. Okay, and and that begs the question: What are the main kind of differential diagnoses, or or sometimes misdiagnoses that can be mistaken for asthma?
0: Well, I think most commonly in in the hospital setting, the the kind of aspects of or kind of conditions that might present like asthma um, will be will present with a wheeze, but it's always interesting. It's always important to Talk to the parents and find out what they mean by wheeze. What we, what you or I describe as wheeze may be very different to the term, um, a particular parent, um, or, or the reason they're using the term wheeze. And so it's worth asking them what they mean by it. Um, sometimes they might mean more kind of airway noise that might be related to secretions. Stridor, which is an inspiratory sound, can be mis, uh, misinterpreted as wheeze by parents, and, and actually sometimes even even by doctors when they're examining children. Um, in terms of misdiagnosis, I mentioned um, stridor. Um, that's something that in younger kids uh, presenting with croup can be misdiagnosed as wheeze. Um, and in older adolescents, um, they can get um, a phenomenon called vocal cord dysfunction, uh, which can be triggered by different um, triggers, such as um, exercise or st- times of stress. Um, and um, is, is typically an inspiratory noise that you hear, as opposed to the expiratory wheeze, it's classical of asthma. And then the other main kind of misdiagnoses are more conditions where wheeze may be a component of it, um, but asthma is not, not, not the underlying process. And probably the most common instances we might see of that might be ones where they're more infection-driven. So in the ED department, where we see kids that actually, their presentation whilst incorporating wheeze is also characterized by inspiratory crackles and auscultation, oxygen requirement. They often have a lack of broncholedadial response because their pathology is not being driven by airway hyper-responsive and bronchoconstriction, but actually more by mucus production and um, smaller airway congestion. And typically in those kids, what, we, what they're characterized is by that lack of broncholedadial response um, with a short-acting beta 2 agonist I mentioned before. The other thing we think about in younger kids as well is, is foreign bodies, which tend to have a classic history, um, often characterised by choking. They may not always be witnessed, but as opposed to the generalised kind of polyphonic wheeze that we'll classically hear in asthma, they'll have a more localised um, wheeze, and again, it, it'll be something that doesn't respond to the short-acting beta-2 agonists.
1: Okay, thanks, uh, Paul. And tell us about the diagnosis of asthma in in preschool children uh, or, or infants. Yeah.
0: So I, I mentioned before that it's very common for children to have wheeze episodes when they're young, um, and then up to half will have had a wheeze episode by the age of six. And, and preschool, the infant and preschool age range can be an age range where wheeze is actually very common, but the actual underlying diagnosis of asthma is actually quite challenging. And so in infants, um, wheeze can easily be generated by the fact that airways can be smaller in that age range, and a number of kids will get transient transient infant wheeze just purely based on their airway size that does not cause a lot of discomfort or distress for them, and that simply gets better with age. And then in preschoolers, it's very common to get viral-induced wheeze, and that's a type of wheeze that actually doesn't respond in the, in the same characteristic way that classic asthma style wheeze does and so what's happened over time is we've learned more about um, how to try and manage those kids and what and what doesn't work um, as well as trying to work out a best way of deciphering which kids are likely to have early onset asthma in that setting
1: okay thank you and that moves us on neatly to, to management um what is the mainstay of management of acute asthma in children?
0: The mainstay of, of asthma management or acute asthma management would be short-acting um, beta-2 agonists. Um, and that, that is not only part of our diagnostic um, approach um, by seeing a, a bronchodilator response, um, both from a symptom point of view and a sign you know, in terms of what we see on examination, um, it's also what we would then use to try and control the wheeze. And beyond that, in those kids that actually have a broncholated response is we then start to think about an anti-inflammatory agent like oral corticosteroids. Um, and those those can be very useful in the right setting. I mentioned before the challenge of, of viral-induced wheeze in the preschooler. What we know in that setting is actually many of the children in that age range don't respond in the classic way um, that we would see in older kids uh, with oral corticosteroids. Um, but there is some uh, important studies that have been done over the past five to 10 years that have actually tried to investigate how useful oral corticosteroids can be in that setting. There were two main studies um, that I would mention in this kind of setting, one that was done by Panicker and Al in the UK actually in 2009, and then more recently by Foster and Al in Perth in Australia. And they were, they were interested in looking at um, oral corticosteroids in the setting of viral-induced wheeze in preschool subjects. So those are those are children up to the age of five to six years. So in the Panicker study, they actually um, looked in, in a 10-month to six-year age range, almost 700 preschoolers or infants, and, and looked at the effectiveness of five, five-day oral steroid course in children presenting with viral-induced wheeze to hospital. Um, importantly, in that study, they actually found no difference in length of stay, or ventilation use, or symptom scores, um, and that really um, meant that uh, people were discouraged from using oral corticosteroids readily in the in the community um, for preschoolers who got viral induced wheeze attacks. Um, and, the, and the reason why we do that is because it's actually quite common in that age range to get um, viral infections, and a number of them can cause. Um, acute wheeze. Um, and so it's not uncommon with, with the kids that we would see in clinic to have a history where they might have seven to eight episodes of viral infections through the year. If they're accompanied by wheeze each time and they're being given oral corticosteroid courses, then that actually leads to quite a significant amount of oral corticosteroid exposure um, for children of that age range. And in essence, what you end up doing is exposing them to the risk factors and the side effects of, of effects on, on growth. Um, which can, which is obviously a concern. The Foster et al study in 2018 used a slightly different approach and they looked at a slightly older age group in terms of two years to five years. And what they were able to see in that study, which was over 600 children, is they were able to demonstrate um, what was felt to be a, a benefit in the length of stay. Um, so nine hours versus six hours in the children presenting to hospital. My interpretation of that um, those studies and and this is echoed by others um, uh, within the profession is that it it reinforces the value of children who present um, to hospital um, with acute viral induced wheeze episodes in that age range being considered for oral corticosteroids. Certainly, if they have um, evidence of a beneficial response to short acting bronchodilator and also have some risk factors for early asthma, but we really shouldn't be using medications like oral corticosteroids more liberally um, in the community um, just for viral-induced wheeze episodes in the preschoolers. So that's that's probably the aspect of management that I'd comment on in those younger kids. Um, and then in, in older kids, in terms of acute asthma management, I I think one of the aspects that's received attention over the last five to 10 years has been about the value of uh, magnesium sulfate, um, which is a, a bronchodilator. Um, it's, it's an element with actually um, many kind of complex functions um, within acute asthma, the precise mechanisms of which we don't fully understand, um, but it's, um, it can be given as an IV, either an IV um, bronchodilating agent or, or an inhaled nebulized um, agent. And there have been studies um, over the past five, 10 years that have tried to examine its beneficial um, role as an IV broncholator and nebulized broncholator in more severe asthma episodes. And I think um, the best way to look at those studies and and interpret those studies is there's some benefit, um, certainly of IV magnesium sulfate in the more severe asthma attack setting. um, And that supports its um, incorporation into um, acute asthma guidelines in those more severe attacks, um, the jury is still out in terms of um, the nebulized magnesium sulfate utility um, in that setting. Although what we're starting to see more is, is that um, different um, emergency departments and um, some facilities are starting to consider it um, if if IV magnesium sulfate is not easy to give at a particular time. But those those are the two aspects, I think, of management that I'd probably comment on. Um, and then um, uh, more broadly, I think I'd then move on to just talk about the appreciation in recent years of of asthma attacks being red flags, uh, of, of not simply just um, accepting them as part and parcel of um, everyday asthma.
1: Okay, thank you. And, and are there any other common pitfalls in management, would you say, besides that?
0: Um, The common pitfalls, I I think, in terms of management would be about correct diagnosis. Um, And I think, um, first of all, making sure that we don't label um, children with asthma um, too readily because it's a label that tends to take over time. Um, I mentioned before that uh, kids can get viral-induced wheeze, and that's something that's actually very common in the preschool age range, um, affects a lot of our preschoolers. But yet only 10% of kids go on to have a more classic um, allergic asthma pattern of symptoms that 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 continues um, into the school age range. And so I think it's important to make sure that the labels we give kids um, that they have asthma are important. Um, in terms of pitfalls, uh, I think um, then it's about recognizing that asthma attacks um, are important when they happen, that they're red flags, as I mentioned before, that Asthma attacks, when they do happen, um, should be seen as an important reminder for the paediatrician, for the general practitioner, um, for the emergency doctor dealing with them. That actually, this is an important opportunity to to look um, at the education of the family and the child about how to manage them, to make sure they have a clear asthma action plan, um, that they follow, um, that um, that people take the time to actually then look at their routine asthma management to make sure that's optimal um, and to not simply accept asthma attacks as part and parcel of childhood asthma, um, but recognize actually that if an asthma attack occurs, it is then a warning sign that that child is at risk of further asthma attacks and potentially of unfortunately bad outcomes from asthma because as you mentioned, Kieran, at the start of this podcast, there are still asthma deaths that are happening um, and we should be viewing those as preventable. Because in the vast majority of cases, that's exactly what they are, if the proper steps are taken um, at the right time to make sure asset management is optimised.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Paul. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content and this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.